Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative. Then the next Brock, block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. <laughs> Thank so. you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. <laughs> yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. During a recent trip to Melbourne, it was an absolute treat to spend a few hours with John Newman. John is the ultimate showman, actor, producer, impresario and all-round legend. At 91, he is as passionate about the business as he ever was. A fine raconteur and custodian of a vibrant entertainment heritage. Growing up as the son of a publican, his youth in Geelong was filled with an assortment of characters and experiences. Early forays into performance saw him tour with variety shows as comedian, magician, singer and impressionist. He was happy to try his hand with any style of act as long as he could connect with an audience. He entered the big league with a chorus role in J.C. Williamson's production of The Song of Norway. This led to a succession of shows with the firm, including South Pacific, a show that would change his life. It was in this Rodgers and Hammerstein perennial that John would meet Joyce Taylor and begin a legendary personal and professional partnership that would produce a double act that toured the world, regular appearances in J.C. Williamson musicals, a theatre restaurant empire and a family who would keenly follow in their parents' show business footsteps. Joyce, or Tiki Taylor, was playing Minnie Faye in Hello Dolly. She met up with John after the performance to grab a post-show coffee. A stroll down Exhibition Street presented them with few options for late-night suppers. This was a fortuitous event for us all, as they then hatched the idea to begin their own coffee shop experience. This, of course, led to the evolution of Tiki and John's. The venue fast became an institution in Melbourne and a haven for a stellar cast of performers. You're going to love this conversation. It's so rich in history, passion and joy. John is truly a stalwart of our industry. He has absolutely been there and done that and he wouldn't have it any other way. Here he is, folks, Mr John Newman. And the oh, funny little restaurant upstairs, just near Swanson Street, called the Fairy. I can't remember, and it's not there now. Anyway, I was taking her down there, and a group of young girls came up, and Tiki was the star of the pyjama game, and they ignored her and saw Melge and said, the girls all went, you're soaking in it. <laughs> and I said, there's so much for your stage performance. 
they got you on television. Well, the power of te- television, that wasn't it? Was yeah, and the enormous. audience that it could reach. Yeah, mainly amazing. Did you ever have a crack at television? Yes, I had a lot, lot to do with television. Uh, for a start, I was the person that took Maya into advertising on television, uh, using Crawford's as the production company. And I did that for four years, and I used to go in there with Wally O'Donnell, who was the advertising director. And that was a, I'd be there at nine o'clock in the morning, and then I'd go right through with Graham Kennedy till 10.30 at night, you know. And then back at nine o'clock in the morning, I nearly went mad. They were live commercials, were they? The live commercials, yeah, yeah, it was right. Graham. Right. And, uh, you know, Graham would like the leather coats, of course. And uh, uh, he'd say, you don't want to carry... These are heavy, these leather coats. You don't want to carry those back to Myers, do you? <laughs> I said, no, I don't, Graham. Do what you like with them. And he'd say, I want four stallions to come here. These are Italian coats. And he'd get the Italians all pretending to be models and getting girls out of the audience and we'd sell a thousand the following morning. I'd ring Wally at home and say, listen mate, you better get security. The people will pinch them, they'll come and grab them by and take them with it. And that's what they did, they stole them. And we had the police taking the coats off people. Wow. But that was the power of television, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. uh, that would have been the late 50s too. Yeah, late 50s. When TV had just arrived in Yeah, just, just then. And I did a show called All Star Sweepstakes. I was the compere. And they, they used to come in and watch me work at Dickie and John's. And I used to have said things. I used to set them in the audience. People that have been on the floor say, say to me, what do you think of Red China? And somebody just said, yeah, well, you want to say something? Yeah. What do you think of Red China? I said, it looked lovely on the white tablecloth. <laughs> you know, all set. And yeah. they thought these all came off the top of my head. Yeah. But they were things that I, you know, I planned it. Yes. And uh, anyway, All-Star Sweepstakes was sporting. And I wasn't into sports at all. I didn't know the people. But that last 13 episode was terrible. I should never have done Larry Nixon. Does that ring a bell with you, no, Larry? No, no. He he had a daytime television show, and I worked with him. And he after the first break of uh, All Star Sweepstakes, which we, we were recording, he said to me, "Let's get out of here, mate." I said, "You can't walk out." He said, "Yes, you can. You can because you're no good. Get out." <laughs> so I never went back to television again. I hated it. Mm. But Tiki was great. She was terrific with television. She did it. She used to go to Sydney every Friday, do uh, Bobby Lim's Sound of Music, and then come back on Saturday morning. Did that for a year. Yeah. As a regular cast member of of Bobby, yeah, yeah Bobby a show. regular cast member. Sound of Music. The... Was it the Sound of Music? That show. Uh, the television show was called. The television show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Done from Sydney, Channel yeah. Nine. Yeah. Bobby Lim sound of music. Yeah. yeah. So John Newman, tell me, is there no business like show business? There is no business like show business. If it is, I haven't been kicked out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've demonstrated that admirably over, over many years as a, a performer and a producer and an entrepreneur. 
Yeah, I've loved, I've loved show business. Well, my father loved show business people. We, uh, he had nine hotels, all told, in the in the country areas of uh, of uh, Victoria, uh, Horsham, uh, Warrnambool, uh, Geelong. We had three hotels in Geelong. One of them was right down near where the the tents used to go, Sawley's tents, and variety tents, Worth Circus. They'd all be down there, and they'd come up and they'd stay in our hotel for the week of that show. And on Sunday night, when we didn't do shows on Sunday night in those days, and uh, the, uh, we had a sort of a, a lounge room where all the people who lived in the hotel would stay there, and, uh, and the circus people and variety people would put on a show. You know, they'd do the, the Harry Grundon play the piano. Well, he and his partner, Spicer, Grundon and Spicer, they, she sang and he played piano. Well, they, they knew, got to know, as carnies, carnival people, got to know that if you do the Sunday night concert, he won't charge you for the accommodation. <laughs> they couldn't wait to get it on. I remember one old bloke had his daughter. She was a contortionist. And she was about ten, and he used to do a handstand with her one hand, and she'd do the contortion upside down. And then she ran upstairs and put on a leotard and came down, and they did it in the lounge room, <laughs> just to get the free accommodation. Some of those shows must have been four and five hours long. Oh, they went forever, yeah. <laughs> They'd go all night. My father loved them. And he was on the committee of the Geelong Musical Comedy Company. And I loved it too. And I used to go into all the meetings and sit on a cabinet and listen to the shows they were going to bring down from Melbourne. Floradora, The Lilac Domino, Sunny, Sally, uh, even they tried to get Annie get your gun at one stage and they wouldn't let it go down there. Right. So that's uh, how I got into show business was through the Geelong Musical Comedy Company. But your first exposure to show people, that was the carnies. That, that yeah, the carnies. Yeah, yeah. And I used to sit on Harry Grundon's knee, I was about nine or something, and he taught my brother and I, Bill, Bill had a great voice as a young man, great voice and he went right through and played leading men in uh, in uh, J.C. Williamson's he played a, a leading man in uh, uh, a painter wagon he even went on in South Pacific and played Emile de Beck the French planter uh, we Tiki and I had gone by then we left the show we did two years and then we went to set the world on fire yeah. with our act. So what, what was it like growing up in a pub? Oh, I hated it, yeah. really. I, I was a Walter Mitty. Uh, I lived my own little world. I lived in what was originally a broom cupboard and they put a bed in there and I slept in there. And I was a very light sleeper. And in those days, believe it or not, if you travelled more than 20 miles in your car, you could re knock on the front door of a hotel and get a beer. That was the law. Really? Yeah. Oh. And I used to hear the front doorbell ring and I'd run downstairs so my father wouldn't get there. And um, 
I'd I'd uh, let the people and they'd say, "Can we get a beer?" Yeah, I'd take them into a special little room, and then I wasn't allowed to pour the beer. I was only allowed to take the tops off it, and they had to pour it actually yeah. to drink it. And then I'd charge them for that. And then away they'd go. But they could. Everyone was entitled to have a beer after travelling twenty <laughs> twenty miles. So you'd be doing all sorts of chores around the pub oh um, yeah in, including cleaning the toilets cleaning the toilets oh that was awful uh, I, I had uh, we had the, the American sailors soldiers and airmen were uh, stationed or billeted as they called it uh, out on the Geelong Road to Torquay and they used to come into the hotel and uh, we used to have great times there but you know the men used to go out and because you had to hold the seat up uh, to pee in it. Um, they never did that. They just peed all over the seat. It was a terrible moment. And I was forever cleaning up, mopping up the seats. And I thought of this idea. I got ping pong walls and I painted Hitler's head <laughs> on them. <laughs> Both sides because it doesn't matter which side it floated then. And I used to put it in the dunny. Well, the Americans used to go in there. They'd see Hitler's face in the dunny and they'd try and pee on him. Well, that kept all the stream in the right direction. Kept the aim correct. That's, yeah, so that was clean that one up. That's a simple one. That's genius. That's absolute genius. I read also in your, you know, your wonderful um, autobiography, An Entertaining Life, John and Tiki, An Entertaining Life, that you didn't um, live in a house until you bought one. No, I never lived in a private house until I bought one. Yeah. And that was after Tiki and I came back from being in England for two years and being right through India and Colombo and Singapore and right through France entertaining the American troops, occupational troops after the war. And uh, then when we got back, um, I saw we were travelling down trying to find a park to go to a hotel and have lunch. And uh, I saw this hotel, for, uh, this house for sale in Leopold Street, South Yarra. And uh, I rang the guy up and he said, yes, it's got 13 rooms in it. I said, oh, we can make it into a show business boarding house yeah. and that's what we did, <laughs> did we had you? some marvellous people stayed there so when performers would tour to Melbourne yeah that's, they come straight down to us you got a room yeah got a room and then we'd I, I'd get the car out and take them to the theatre each night you know so we had a marvellous time every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock everyone brought food and we sat out in the back and I remember Gwendo Paul, the pianist, who stayed there with us. She played piano and accordion while we trod the grapes from the market to make wine. It was never any good, but we used to sing Italian songs and while we crushed the grapes with our feet. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Stuart Wagstaff was in that. He, he used to live there quite a lot every time he came down. Um. You wanted to be a comedian from the go-get. Right from the word go, yeah. You loved uh, the sound of laughter? And... Yeah, I did. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I, uh, I came across in the Geelong Musical Comedy Company, a fellow said, have you thought of putting an act together and uh, going and entertaining the troops? We go out every Friday, Saturday and Sunday night and uh, if you had an act, you could come and 
perform there if you wanted to. I said, yeah, that'd be great, because I don't like being in the hotel on those nights. They're busy, they smell a beer, and everyone's drunk. And I'm a young 14-year-old boy, you know. So I, uh, with my sister Dorothy, my elder sister, she made me an outfit. I had a very high uh, 14-year-old soprano voice, and I used to do an impersonation of... uh, Carmen Miranda, with all the fruit on her head and uh, dress in drag, and uh, I remember she used to have to shave the, le- the hairs off my legs, otherwise I used to stick through the mesh. Away <laughs> I'd go with my little case and my high heel shoes on, and up to the Geelong Post Office where the bus was that took us out, and we put the running orders together on the bus, and. Uh, it was great because I used to come out and say, ay, 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 I like you very much. And uh, they, they thought I was a beautiful girl, you know. I had the body of a four, you know, a beautiful girl because I was 14. And uh, the great outfits that my sister used to make. And, um, and they used to come and knock on the caravan and say, can we have a date with Carmen Miranda? And I'd say, I don't know, go in and ask her. And they'd go in and ask my sister. <laughs> Not the only time you did drag. I believe there was a, a story when you were in HMS Pinafore as one of the sisters. Oh, yeah. Well, I was at the Geelong College in those days. Uh, my father put me in there because I was too hard to handle. And I remember he took me in to see the uh, principal... Uh, Dr. Bunting, and uh, Dr. Bunting said to my father, why do you want your son, 14-year-old John, to be come to a college like the Geelong College? And uh, my father said, well, Dr. Bunting, he wants to get into show business, and that's no... Uh, a career. Or... career for anybody. Mm. You never make any money out of that. And I thought you were able to knock that out of him a bit. So the next minute, I'm playing a girl in HMS Pinafore, in the, in the, the social club. And uh, we lived just a block away from the hotel. And the idea wa- was you had to dress your children in the uh, HMS Pinafore uniforms that they had and uh, take them to this college, which was miles away, and then the bus would bring them in to the theatre in back to where we were, where I started. And uh, my father said, will it be all right if my son walks up there? It's only just up the back lane. And uh, they said, yes, that'll be all right. So I dressed at home and I had peekaboo shoes on, cotton reel <laughs> heels, and I had white socks up to my knees. That's quite and a vision. pantaloons and the gloves. <laughs> and a big picture hat and wigs, and my sister gave me a really good makeup. I had the best makeup. Anyway, I used to sneak up amongst the rubbish bins in uh, the back lane and up to the Geelong Theatre where we would put the show on on a Sunday night. And uh, I'd just wait in the rubbish tins there until the bus pulled up and then I'd sneak in with the kids. And then coming home that night... uh, I, I waited till they, they all got on the bus and went back. My father couldn't go because six o'clock was the time, their best time for selling. You know, that, that's when beer stopped in the hotels, six o'clock. 
It was called the six o'clock swill. And uh, my father couldn't take me up to the, in the car up to the college. So I, I did that business for sneaking up around the back lanes. And uh, on the way back, I, I, I was just walking down, swinging my little handbag <laughs> on the Cotton Reel Hill, and two police officers on pushbike pulled up alongside of me and said, excuse me, madam, where do you think you're going in that outfit? And I said, I'm just going down to the Phoenix Hotel. And they said, what are you going down there for? Uh, and I said, well, you, I think you come here on the Thursday night, don't you? When the boys have a drink with my father, Ted Newman. And they suddenly realised, oh, they say, all right, I will see you later then. And of course, that Thursday night, I was in there helping Dad clean the glasses or whatever I did. And uh, there they, they walked in, and my father told the story about how I snuck down from the theatre. came to be in, in drag. Dressed in the <laughs> girls from Pinafore. Yeah. We're three little girls from Pinafore! <laughs> so only the two siblings were there? Your brother Bill and sister Dorothy? Uh, no, and a sister Marion. Right. Marion lives up in Queensland. She was nine years after... Uh, well into my mother's 40th year really? when uh, she was born right. and uh, you, you know she's she turned 83 I think the other day I'm 91 and I don't know anybody 91 they're all dead <laughs> <laughs> all my friends in show business do you ever keep in touch no they're all dead <laughs> How do you keep in touch with the dead? <laughs> that's, that's the dilemma of getting older, I suppose. Yeah, it was awful. Oh, dear. Now, Grundon and Pierce, they were staying at a pub in Geelong. Grundon and, and Pierce, yeah, yeah. Grundon and Pierce. They came out from England as a star act for the Tivoli. Uh, and they were beautiful performers. He, Grundon, Harry Grundon played the piano. And uh, he taught my brother and I a number called The Hats on the Side of My Head, which every now and again my sons both just pick, get out the ukulele, play the ukulele, and they say, Funny thing what love could do, take a little look at me. Yesterday I was so blue, bluer than the blue, deep blue sea. Now I'm happy I'm singing a song, happy the whole day through. And if you want to know just why, I can truthfully say, boop, 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 I've got a feeling I've found her. And that was the song we hit, they taught us to sing. And we went to, uh, down in Geelong, and we went up to uh, Melbourne uh, at 3AW and won a competition on the air singing that song and won a Mickey Mouse radio, which my sister still has <laughs> up in New South Wales after all this time. Oh, a lovely, lovely story. It's a lovely story, isn't it? But Grundon and Pierce, they invited you down to see, was it Travellers in Song, was it the name of their show at the TIV? Uh, Travellers in Song, that, that was their name. Yeah, yeah. Grundon and Pierce, the Travellers in Song, yeah. And they, they came down with a with a show, I think it was, was Sawley's, and they were the Travellers of Song, and they stayed at the hotel, and that's how we got to know them. But you would sneak away every four weeks, I, I think, to go to Melbourne yeah. and see the show. I had to go up every, every four weeks to, uh, to uh, the Tiv watch the Tivoli show. I, I used to come up by train, 
it used to come right to Flinders Street Station in the Geelong train, and then I'd go over to George's Oyster Bar and have a dozen oysters, because you couldn't get oysters in Geelong then, and I, with little triangular pieces of brown bread, <laughs> I used to walk up, turn round into Burke Street, buy my half-price ticket to the Tivoli that afternoon, then I'd walk up a little bit further uh, in Burke Street to Andrade's Magic Shop. And I used to go in there and when they were selling magic to young kids, they used to say, go to John there, he'll show you how to work the magic. And I had a little uh, place there where I'd show them how to do the magic and, you know, they'd pay for it and away they'd go. So that used to be my Saturday to go up there once a month to see whatever show was on. And, that and would they be changed like, every month. That would be like uh, your showbiz school, because you're... Oh, yeah, uh, you learned everything. You're looking at all the types of acts and how to put an act together. Yeah, I remember we. I used to go the cheapest seats with Thropons, and they were right up in the gods, and the girls uh, were bare-breasted, but they weren't allowed to move. The curtains used to open, and the girls would all be there, the men would all whistle, and all that sort of business. And I had straws, I used to take them out of the bar. And rice, I had a pocket full of rice. I'd put a <laughs> thing of straw and I'd go, Tup! and I'd hit the girls in the belly. And of course they'd get a jolt and they'd make their titties bounce up and down. And everyone would cheer! And they didn't know how it was, how it was that the girls did it. It was me shooting the bloody grains of rice at them. <laughs> Oh dear. You got to work with people like Max Reddy and Stella Lamont. Yeah, yeah. Max and Stella were lovely people. Uh, uh, Max Reddy was Helen Reddy's father mm. with Stella Lamont. And uh, uh, a, called, a comedian called Twentyman, that was his surname, I don't know his first name, but he was a big comedian, very funny, and he was married to... Uh, uh, Stella before he died and that was Tony Lamont's mother and father Yes, yeah. so Tony and Helen were sisters yeah. by marriage yeah. Yeah. and I, I lived in just down in Riversdale Road Hawthorne and uh, I used to go up to their flat every Sunday morning at uh, 11 o'clock and I'd play with the, their, the comedian's kids as the comedians had a morning session of fun, you know, I laughed on it. I tuned in every gag I heard, you know. I loved all the gags, and that's where I got my love of telling gags from. Um, Stella's first husband was Joe Lawman. Joe Lawman, yeah, was it? Yeah. Not 20 men. No, no. Lawman. Lawman. Joe Lawman, yeah. yeah. That's it, Joe Lawman. Yeah. Oh, gee, I must write that down. I often stumble over that one. Yeah, yeah but uh, Tony, of course was in the pyjama game with Tiki and my brother Bill was the leading man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was, I only had two words in the show. Most of the musicals I was in, I had one or two words, nothing else. And uh, I became known as a one-word comedian. <laughs> but you obviously had a voice too. Yeah, I had a voice, yeah. yeah. I, I loved singing, I absolutely adored it. Tell me about a, a fellow called Billy Andros. That was Gloria Dawn's father, wasn't Gloria it? Gloria Dawn's father. He was a funny little man. He used to come up to, to my uh, Tiki and John's 
which was at 163 Exhibition Street, now pulled down and the entrance to a car park. Well, you know, that happens. And uh, Billy used to always be in there. He used to walk around the tables and say hello to everybody. He was only about five foot high, tiny little fella, and always worked as a clown at Worth Circus. He was a famous clown. And uh, he used to do, uh, with chalks, he used to do, he used to sing Egypt song where you belong and he'd draw pyramids and palm trees and coconuts and everything and it was, he was really a funny and he used to do the magic rings, Chinese rings and everything. He was a one-man band. He worked with a monkey, didn't he? Yeah, he worked, oh, terrible rhesus monkey. Hated everybody, hated me. Used to try and grab me and uh, I, I believe the story goes that in the last days of the, the um, uh, theatre out in... Uh, the Plaza? Nor- Northcote, the yep. Plaza Northcote. And he was working on stage doing his... Uh, uh, paper te- paper uh, drawings, and he had the rhesus monkey on a chain t- to his uh, easel, and uh, the monkey hated the musical director and went down on the end of his chain and stood over the the foot footlights, and the management had taken every second globe out oh. of the footlights because of, it was using too much electricity, yeah. and they were they were because of television, they weren't doing too well. And as he stepped across the footlights to have a swish at the musical director, one of his knackers dropped in the <laughs> empty socket and blew him up. <laughs> and, and Billy turned around and went, oh, fancy that. What a clever monkey. <laughs> Goodbye, monkey. But Billy taught you the act of paper tearing, I think. Oh, he taught me paper tearing. I I loved him, you know, he was such a marvellous. And he used to come back to our restaurant and hide in the toilet anywhere so that when uh, everybody had gone and I was the last one out and I'd switch everything off and I'd go and uh, I'd wait a little while just up the street and all of a sudden I'd see his candle alight and he'd he'd be walking around with the candle into the cool room, take out a whole chicken and eat it all night. He had a marvellous time. He stayed there for six months. You're becoming very versatile in developing uh, a series of acts, paper tearing, ventriloquism. Oh, I love ventriloquism. Yeah. I had a, 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 a ventriloquist during the war. I, had a, I, made, I made all my own dolls and they used to have everything. The eyebrows used to twitch, the uh, top lip used to curl, curl up if yeah. they were talking about Hitler or Mussolini and uh, you know the tongue would stick out and uh, even Winston Churchill's his arm would come around and he'd have a fake cigar in it and he'd pretend to have a puff and it was just talcum powder I used to just press a little rubber bulb and it used to push a bit of talcum powder out and it looked as though he was smoking (laughs) and uh, I'd say uh, do you have any uh, words for us, uh, Winston? And he'd say, yes, as a matter of fact, I do have words for you. Uh, we will fight on the beaches. We will fight in the skies. We shall never surrender. And that was my... I used to do the whole speeches of Winston Churchill with that doll. Yeah, I loved it. 
Yeah. And impersonations. Impersonations. I did Groucho Marx. That was my famous one. Yeah. Uh, I stood there and I, I said, I, I pull out a a, a Lachner, a grease paint paint stick, a black one, and I put the big flat moustache on for Groucho Marx. The eyebrows. Out of my pocket, I take the little glasses and put them on. Out of my inside pocket, I put a wig on the. The thing, and then I'd sit down and cross my legs and pull my trousers up, and on my leg I had a, a, a white stocking that had all hairs hanging on it, and it used to get a big laugh. And my opening gag was: I remember walking down the streets of Cairo the other day. I looked up, and there she was on a balcony, Madame Galitzi. I said, "Will you be free tonight, Madame?" She said, "No, very reasonable." That was that was the opening gag. I think it's the only one I ever got to laugh with. And tell me about your coloured chicken act. Do you have coloured chicks? Oh, the chicks! Yeah. I used to do a magic trick where um, uh, I, I had a, a, a fry pan. Of course, in the lid of the fry pan was chickens, which I used to get from the Dale Chick people, and I used to put boiling water into crepe paper to get the coloured yellow, green, blue, yellow, and then I'd dip the chickens in and give them a bit of a shake, and uh, they'd come out and they'd all be lovely colours. Five minutes later they were dry, and they were all different colours. And I'd put them in the lid of the fry pan, then I'd say, I'd put some methylated spirits in and light the flame in the fry pan, put the lid on, of course, that immediately released the fake bottom, and then suddenly when I lift the lid off, it was full of little coloured chickens. And then I give them to people to take home, and they, they complain to the, to the ten people. They send chick, coloured chickens home to me. I've got nowhere to put chickens. In 1967, the, the Tivoli burned down. Yeah. I believe you saved a couple of uh, floorboards from the front of the stage. Yeah, right from where all the comedians, all those years of me going and watching the comedians work, people like Jim Gerald and uh, uh, great all... Mo, Mo was incredible. He'd walk on stage and people would laugh. And he'd just stand there absolutely still and they would just laugh. And I could never work out why they laughed. And the next minute I'd find myself laughing too, with them. And that's the magic he had because he wasn't a funny man. He was a little Jewish man and he used to come... One of the hotels we my father had was right opposite the town hall in Warrnambool and they used to stay at our hotel and then be there on the Saturday night for the show. And they used to play cricket out in the, our uh, glass house. And he, Mo would hold the cricket bat upside down so he was actually striking with the handle. And I'd go over and I was only young, nine or ten then. I'd whip the cricket bat out of his hand, turned it around and put it back in his hand the right way. But that's, that was Mo. Yeah. He wasn't a funny man. But he was with this character that he used to do. Mo Makaki. Mo Makaki, yeah. Well, he said it, he changed it to Makaki when he got to radio. Right. Which he was enormously uh, successful with. Makaki Mansions. Makaki Mansion, yeah. yeah. A sidekick called Stiffy. 
Steffi and Mo, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nat Jackley, that man's name was. Right. And I've still got it. Uh, after it was burnt down, uh, I remember going into the wardrobe department and there was one thing that wasn't burnt. It was a straw boater and it had Nat, N-A-T, written inside it. And I put that on and I walked out of the Tivoli with that on and I've still got it somewhere here with Nat written inside. So that must have been Nat Jackley's because he wore a straw boater. Now your first uh, professional employment in a, in, a, in a show, a variety show, was with the Broadways? Is, Broadways, is yes. Yeah. Alf Broadway. Was that his uh, real name? Yeah, that's his real name, right. yeah, Alf Broadway. And his uh, wife, Etty, she was a pianist. And then they had uh, two children, Johnny Broadway and uh, Shirley Broadway. And uh, they had a, a, a fellow called, um, he was a pianist, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute. He, played, he was blind from birth and he played beautiful piano. And we used to put the piano on a position on stage and we weren't allowed to move that piano because he took all his lines to getting off stage and on stage from the edge of that piano and I was on I remember we were playing in the Mallee once and it was boiling hot and there were hundreds of people in the because we raised money for the Victorian Institute for the Blind uh, there and of course they used to go there a month before into the hotel at six o'clock and sell raffle tickets for the show. They didn't care whether you turned up or not because they'd sell five times the capacity of the hall. <laughs> and of course, they'd hope you lose it because the guys would be all drunk at six o'clock, would put the pockets in their uh, uh, raffle tickets in their pocket, nobody knew what they were for. And uh, so that's how it, uh, it, it. The guy used to play the piano. Anyway, he, he, I was dressed up in. in uh, chaps made of lamb's wool and a leather vest and a great big ten gallon hat and I was singing from Oklahoma Oh what a beautiful morning and I was good, had a good voice in those days Oh what a beautiful morning and uh, I was singing way there and I used to use a hair oil called Slicks S-L-I-X and it was basically Vaseline and of course underneath the hat it got to 120 degrees and the hair oil melted and it came down and dripped into my eyes and suddenly I was absolutely blind. And uh, I said, I'm in trouble. Uh, I can't think of his name. Oh, gee, lovely bloke. Uh, And he said, just stay there, put your elbow out. I said, okay. And he walked straight across and grabbed my elbow and took me off into the, into where the girls were, they had hot water ready to wipe my eyes out. And Shirley Broadway, Alfie Broadway's daughter, who was a lovely girl, a great singer, she said, oh, we'll have to call you Slixy after the hair oil. And that name has stuck. There's still people say to me, hello, Slixy, how are you? And my number plate of my car was Slixy. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Alf had a go at a group of soldiers one night. I oh, yeah. We were up at... Uh, um, where was it? Uh, Pacapanyol. We were playing Pacapanyol and a lot of the soldiers used to get in free of charge. Now Alfie, 
as a little comedian, put his little hat on. He used to sneak in and sit next to somebody. And I used to walk out in my dinner suit and I'd say, Ladies and gentlemen, a poem by Longfellow. The old man walked to the slip rail and peered down the darkening lane. And Alfie would say, He what? I said, He peered down the darkening lane. How old was he? I say, I think he's about 80. Uh, how far did he peer? <laughs> oh, probably about 20 or 30 yards. Well, not bad for an old man, was it? And of course, these soldiers didn't realise that Alfie was part of the act. And they said, Shut up, will you? We want to hear him, not you. <laughs> and he said, You bloody idiots. Your soldiers think you're smart. You're not very smart. You're just, oh, he really put him down. And he walked out and walked round the back and got, came back into the dressing room. And then an interval came up and the manager came running around. He said, listen, you're in trouble. Uh, Alfie uh, insulted them and they're coming around to bash him up. I said, oh, my God. So Alfie said, don't worry, he picked up the soap off the sink and he shoved it in his mouth and started chewing it up and he chewed up and the bubbles were coming out of his mouth and he said to Johnny and me, Johnny was his son, uh, grab my arms and don't let me go. And the door burst open and in came three of these guys and there's Alfie with bubbles coming out of his mouth and Johnny said you better clear boys he's got rabies he's just come back from India and I think he's got rabies <laughs> and they took off the soldiers were flying everywhere and he put his head in and said get out of here the comedian's got rabies and they all took off so we had half, half the audience left after for the second half how long did you do that, that show for? Two years. Two years, touring. touring Two years, just, yeah. And I to... still see Johnny. He's up there. The rest of them are all gone, gone and gone. Yeah. But uh, I see Johnny up there. We have a, always have a lunch. And uh, his family are up there too. He married a, a lovely French girl because Johnny played the uh, 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 Moulin Rouge in Paris right. years later because he was a juggler and he was a brilliant juggler. And they used to give him a ballet girl to hand him his props for the for the juggling. And he married her, brought her back, Christine, and she's still here, lives up in Surface Paradise. You finished that. That was it. Variety on Parade, was it? Variety on Parade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got into the Song of Norway with J. C. Williams. J. C. Williams. That was my first big musical, and I loved every minute of it. I. You know, going into the theatre and her majesty's. I still get that when I walk in and I go always go down backstage and have a look around because I I was there for nine years, you know, and yeah. nine different shows. But to accept the, the contract with J C Williamson's to do that, you had to get out of Variety on Parade, didn't you? Oh yes. And uh, I I thought, gee, they said to me, Yeah, you'll have to try and find somebody who could go into the variety show because you're stepping out and you do half the show yourself and I said oh god I don't know and my auntie who ran a, uh, a, a, a drapery 
shop in Geelong called Lindsay and McKenzie's said, look, I've got a bloke working for me. He drives me mad. He's six foot two. He's only 17 years of age, but he gets up on top of the counter and instead of selling material, he tap dances and he plays a ukulele. I said, oh, good, it sounds like the sort of guy I'm looking for. I said, I'll be down on Sunday. Tell him to come and see me and bring his ukulele. So he came down and we we were living in a house then. We got out of the hotel business and uh, in came this young fella, gangly-looking youth, and his name was Barry Crocker. And he came in and I said, come in, Barry. Uh, and then he started telling me gags and I was listening to them and I thought, oh, this fella's perfect for what I did. And uh, uh, he, he played the ukulele, sang a couple of songs and impersonated uh, Frank Sinatra and George Formby and all the people that I impersonated. And I said, will you be available? He said, well, I don't know how I'll get out of Lindsay McKenzie. I said, very quickly, <laughs> you can have that. <laughs> so I rang my, uh, my auntie was there. She was staying in the same building as we all did. And uh, it was a family uh, place to stay. And uh, she came in and said, yes, you can leave straight away if you like. I said, okay, Monday morning, you've got to be at the Geelong West Town Hall where they'll audition you because they're going through there. And they auditioned him and he went in and that was the start of Barry Crocker as the great performer that he is. And a lovely bloke. I kept in touch with uh, with Barry for so many years. It was great. Yeah, lovely bloke, lovely bloke. So the Song of Norway was the first Broadway show to cross the Atlantic That's after right. World War II. After the war. Yeah. That was the first, uh, as was... Uh, South Pacific after the First World, uh, Second World War. That was the big one. Everyone was waiting for South Pacific to come across from America. And the the uh, producer of the show, a fellow called Charles Aitken, he was from uh, from the Bronx, New York, and he was very sharp and to the point, and he didn't muck around. 600 people turned up to be soldiers, sailors, and nurses. And he said, I want eight girls and eight boys. I'm going to tap you on the head and that means you stay where you are. The rest, get out of my sight and don't think you can come back in again because you can't. I've got a photographic memory. I'm from the Bronx, New York, and I never forget anybody. (laughs) So he said, don't try and come back. And, uh, of course, we, we, we... about a hundred of us stayed there and he went along and he was looking for fat ones, thin ones, all sorts of shapes and sizes. And uh, suddenly I got felt my head being touched and this little girl next to me, uh, t- he touched her on the head and uh, he said, what's your name? And she said, Joy Taylor. Oh, that's a nice one. Not a good stage name, but... A nice name, at any rate. Anyway, uh, he picked the six girls and the six boys, and we went up to the music room to start with this musical director that I became great friends with, Gabrielle Joff. And Gabrielle uh, said, "Now, uh, we, if you could do any 
we have concerts that we go to. We can't take the Americans out there to do a concert for the soldiers and sailors. They've got soldiers and sailors of their own. Uh, but uh, we make a little concert party out of you people. Do you do any show business things? And I said, well, I was a compare of a show, and I used to do magic and ventriloquism and all that. And uh, she, uh, Tiki put her hand up and said, yes, I just came back from New, uh, Tasmania with Edgley and Dawes' show. I was a dancer and I did a solo dance. And he said, well, that's a solo from you, a solo from John. Now you two get together and do a double act and I'll get three out of you. So I grabbed her hand and I said, come on, Joy, this could be the start of something big. And she looked at me and said, I don't think so. <laughs> and we were together for 60 years. I care for my skin. I never drink gin. I lie down and rest so that I look my best. I follow the hints out of Harper's Bazaar that help girls to show just how lovely they are. And according to all of the ads that I've read, by just about now I should be the sort of a girl men shower diamonds upon. But I ain't, and it's worrying me. For the men that I meet seem to have a routine, and it's not my routine, if you know what I mean. They smile and say, darling, now just you guess who this present is for. Why, my love, it's for you. Then I smile with a cute sort of coy reproach and unwrap a garnet brooch. I'm just a girl who gets garnets, moonstones, and all the rest of them. I'm just a girl who gets garnets, and I'm not pleased with my lot. I'm just a girl who wants platinum, diamonds, and all the rest of them. I'm not a girl who wants crystal or jets. Jules, there also occurs. 
certain trouble with furs. I'm just a girl who gets moleskin, sheepskin, and all the rest of them. I'm just a girl who gets moleskin, and I'm not pleased with my lot. I'm just a girl who wants ermine, sables, and all the rest of them. I'm not excited by getting some punk, hunk of thonio skunk. It ain't much fun to get sort of coat. met each other as children, I believe. Oh, it? yes, yeah. I'd done at St Leonard's, yeah. where I'll be going to tomorrow, as a matter of fact, because uh, I love a St Leonard's down there, and we sit on the sand and uh, you know, look at the birds, the huge, uh, I don't know what they are, albatrosses, I suppose. They they fly in and skid on the water. They're marvellous. The pelicans, know. maybe. And Tiggy's uh, uh, mother and father had a little fishing village uh, house down there and we used to go down and have a cup of tea with them and I met her as a little girl So how did Joyce Taylor become Tiki Taylor? She got into a show called Blue Mountain Melody Uh, naturally it was an Australian song because Blue Mountain and uh, it had two marvellous people in it, uh, Madge Elliott and Cyril Richard. And they were uh, married, weren't they? They were married, and they were uh, Australians. And they wanted the little girl to clear away a sand. They had Bondo Beach, they put some sand down on the canvas. And she had, a little girl had to clear a trap door and pull the lid open so that the... Uh, uh, Bunyip could jump out of it and dance around on the sand at Bondi and nobody knew what a Bunyip was (laughs) but that was written in and they said there's a little girl she's next door doing a ballet class she's tiny little thing called Joy Taylor so the producer went and saw this little girl tiny little thing and Tiki never got any more than four foot ten. And uh, suddenly she was on stage cleaning with her spade to get the trapdoor. And once it was open and the bunyip got her, she had to drop the thing down again and put the sand back over it. That was her job. And then she'd skip out. And her mother used to bring her in from school. Uh, she went, went to Lowther Hall out in Essendon. And she used to go to the school at uh, one o'clock in the afternoon and get uh, Joy and take her into Her Majesty's Theatre just to do that one little thing. And then she'd hide in the passageway where the girls would take Joy into the dressing room and look after her. And the manager had to bring a message up to one of the girls, an urgent message in the dressing room. And uh, as he was leaving, he saw... Tiki's mother's feet 
underneath the clothes that were hanging on the wall. And he went over part of them and there she was, terrified of being caught. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm just waiting for my daughter to take her home to Mooney Ponds. And uh, he said, that's all right, but you can't sit in the passage in the dark. He said, uh, look, go to the box office every performance and say, I want a ticket for Mrs. Taylor. And they'll give you a ticket and you give it to the doorman and he'll put you in your seat. And you'll sit in the same seat each time. So you'll see every performance and you don't ha you'll be in the air-conditioned theatre. So the following matinee was the first time she was going to try it and she took a little uh, ticky with her uh, as, as soon as I arrived and she said, I've got to come to the box office and ask for a tailor for Mrs. Ticket. And they said, a what? He, she said, a tailor for Mrs. Ticket. Oh, she said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm upset. Uh, I mean a ticket for Mrs. Taylor. And from then on, the ticket always came down as uh, Mrs. Ticket. And she started to say, I, I, I have to get a ticket for Mrs. Ticket. And they said, what about the little girl? No, she's in the show. That's, uh, they called her a little tick. Ticket. So that's where Ticky got the word ticky from. So Frank Tate didn't like the word ticket as much as he did Tiki. He changed it to Tiki. He was the uh, managing director of the theatre. Was Pajama Game the first time that she was identified as Tiki, Taylor? Yes. But that was the first time because Tony Lamond was in the Pajama Game and Tony Lamond and Ticket didn't work, but Tony Lamond, Tony and Tiki did work. Yeah. And they shared a dressing room together, yeah. But, but when she was Joyce Taylor, she had a phenomenal career with Jason. Yeah. Rosemary and White yeah, Horse Yeah, right through all the big Lilac musicals. Time, Brigadoon, and she understudied Ado Annie. Yeah, she had a, I, I went on when Ado Annie was ill and got a write-up in the paper about the brilliance of this little girl who came out and did an acrobatic ballet dance. And uh, it was... That's where she wanted to be her whole life was Her Majesty's Theatre. That's all she wanted to be in, just to be in Her Majesty's. And I took her away from all that. I took her overseas. Uh, the day after we married in Geelong, we left uh, South Pacific in Sydney, went down to Geelong, married the next day, flew to Perth, got on a boat called the SS Caron, and took off for uh, Singapore. No work, only we'd been working in Sydney in the RSL clubs, that we had about six really good acts that we could do every time we went back there. And uh, so we arrived halfway, they stopped the boat and turned around and then suddenly we felt this terrible smell and we looked over the edge and the bottom three decks were full of sheep. We didn't know it was a sheep carrier, and they were chucking the dead ones over. All oh. <laughs> couldn't get near the water uh, to drink. And uh, anyway, we got to Singapore, and I said to the taxi driver, "Any of the hotels have entertainment?" And he said, "Yeah, there's one called the Hotel de l'Europe. 
in Oxley Rise. He said, go, go there. They've got a cockpit called, uh, 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 a nightclub called The Cockpit because all the pilots all stay at that hotel. Tell them they love the nightclub. So I went there and I said, can we speak to the manager? And the girl behind the desk said, no, well, here's the owner of the th hotel. And she came down and I whipped out the ukulele, started to play the ukulele, Tiki started to tap dance, and then we did a routine together, a jitterbug routine, and, and ta-da! And I said, what about that? Tiki and John, young Australian dance couple bubbling over with youthful exuberance. And she got the giggles. She said, how much do you want? No, just accommodation and food. Look after us and we'll stay here. And she said, all right, we've got a special party in tonight. Could you work that? I said, yes. She said, better go and re meet the musical director, which we did. And we worked that night and we did for the next two months. We worked there every night. How long were you in Europe? Oh, well... About, all told, about a year. Right. About a year. That was in Germany, Italy, France. We did a big thing for the occupational troops in uh, in uh, uh, France. We went to different places every night and we had a set show of which I was the manager. And I had to give everybody, every Friday, £10 English so that they could buy cigarettes and things. So South Pacific's a, a pretty special show for you. Yes, it is a special show. It was the show, of course, that I met Tiki for the first time and uh, where we learned, put our acts together and from where we fell in love and uh, suddenly took off to see the world. So it was very important to us. Pajama Game, uh, your brother Bill. Yes, we came Sinsero back from England. To do Pajama Game? Yeah, to do pajama. We were in England and we were travelling with Les Levant, the great Levant magician. We toured with him for nearly two years, all around England, Scotland, Wales, and we, we were heading on Christmas Day. We were playing at a, uh, a suburb in uh, London called uh, uh, Sh uh, Shepherd's Watch. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, uh, we were, after that, we were leaving for Ireland and Tiki, who had to diet all the time to keep her skinny little body and allow me to throw her around in a jitterbug routine, uh, which was taught to us by uh, a famous dancer that supplied all the ballet to the Broadway musicals. So we were with the top drawer. He came out to Australia and uh, he taught dancing from the Sydney Tivoli and that's where we learned to do the routines and they were really bloody good routines yeah. and uh, so that's that's how we started off. Did you get to see the pyjama game in the West End? Yes, we when we left that night we came back into uh, into London and we were staying not, not far out of London. I said we should go to dinner tonight and see if we can get into a show. So we did, we looked around, the, everything was full, uh, you know, all the shows were busy, and uh, one, 
which opened only the day before, seats available. And I went to the counter and I said, what's this pyjama game? What's that? And she said, well, it only opened last night. And it's quite good. I was here. And she said, I enjoyed it. It's about the unions. I said, oh, God, they'll love that in Australia because they're very unionised. So we went to see it. And this little girl, her, her name was Elizabeth Seal. She was playing this part uh, with a boy's haircut, which was black, and Tiki had a huge mop of blonde hair. And uh, halfway through, Tiki, this girl was dancing, and being the star of the show, Tiki pulled my cuff uh, of my shirt, and I let down, and she said, I want to go home, I want that part, because she knew that English people owned the J.C. Williamson's and usually six months later anything that opens on Broadway would open in Australia. So she said we need to be back there within six months and we were back within six months and she auditioned for the producer, an American, Fred Hebert his name was, he came to Christchurch in uh, New Zealand where we were playing can-can with my brother Bill as the leading man and Tiki as the lead dancer and me as the architect in the, the, the artist community. And uh, when we got back to Melbourne, of course, she got the part and I remember him running up to her when she auditioned because she'd seen the girl work it. She worked it exactly the same as the girl. and. Uh, he ran up and said, would you change your hair to black? She said, I'd change it to green. <laughs> and he said, you've got the part. And that's when Tiki knew she was going to be the leading lady in that uh, thing. J.C. Williamson's would often import American and Always. English stars. First time they ever did an all-Australian cast. I think was Pound, the Betty Pounder suggested that, didn't she? Betty Pounder was Tiki's best friend, yeah. and they both started off in the ballet together and went right through, and they were friends. We were the last people to see Pounder alive. Dear lady... What did she do for the musical theatre in Australia, do you think? Well, she she went to to America and London, saw the ballets, worked out a shorthand of how to write the ballet steps down, and she would just write on pages in the dark and flip the, flip the pages over, and then she'd come back and write out what the steps were and everything. And she'd come back to Australia and produce the ballets without them bringing an expensive ballet master out and looking after them for a month. So Tiki becomes, uh, ideally, the first one of the first Bob Fosse dancers in Australia. Yes, well, she was the first one heat. ever to dance Fosse. Yeah. Fosse was a marvellous choreographer. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, she, she was so good in his work. She, she was so right for him. And uh, he saw movies of her and said how great she was. Yeah. And dancing alongside Frank Sheldon and Kevin Johnson. Yes, Ke Frank, Frank Sheldon was Tony Lamont's first husband and uh, Kevin Johnson was Jill Perryman's uh, husband and still is to this day. 
I've been in touch with them a few times when they come down to Melbourne and we always get together and have a, a drink and a laugh. And uh, yeah, it was, we, we all kept together, the whole lot of us. Yeah. Hello, Dolly. Tiki Taylor played Minnie, yeah, Minnie Faye. Uh, Were you in Dolly? No, oh. I, I was, uh, I came back from uh, being company manager for the Great Moscow Circus for the Edgeley family. And it finished in uh, Brisbane, and I had to take the animals, that's nine, sorry, eight tigers and t- two bears, back to Newcastle, where they got on a, uh, uh, a Russian ship, the SS Slavosk, and they left from Newcastle and went back. And then I came back, I had a borrowed a car from Lane's Motors in Melbourne and I had to drive it all the way back down to from Brisbane to Melbourne and I got down to Melbourne around about uh, t- uh, 12 o'clock I think it was and I got rid of the car at Lane's Motors then I walked down and uh, Tiki was uh, in Hello Dolly at that time and just leaving for New Zealand, a couple of days later. So I went in and saw the show and that night, and uh, so it was marvellous. Tiki was playing a lovely little funny character called Minnie Faye. And uh, after the show, she came out and we walked up uh, Exhibition Street, Melbourne, and we were looking for somewhere to have a cup of coffee together. I hadn't seen her for a month, and as we walked up, there was this big building for sale or let, lease. Uh, and I thought, we should own a, open a coffee lounge. We'd be good at that. And Tiki said, anything you say. She said, I've got to go take the two boys with me to New Zealand for three weeks and then I'll be back. So I opened the coffee lounge. Within a week, I'd gone in there, opened the coffee lounge and uh, Tiki came back from New Zealand, came in, and uh, I said, there was a group of people, they were well known in show business circles here, they were called opera, I oh know, show business, I can't think of a name, uh, but they used to see all the musical shows, about ten of them, and they came in and had supper, uh, uh, dinner at our place, said, can we leave our bags? and we'll go down and see Hello Dolly, and then we'll come back here and have supper. I said, oh, that'll be good because Tiki will be coming back too. And they're do doing a repeat of Hello Dolly back in Melbourne. And um, they all left and left their luggage, and that night they came back, and as he went out the door down to Her Majesty's, Mr Philpot said, could we have some entertainment? I said, well, I don't know, I asked Tiki. Anyway, later, Tiki, after the show curtain dropped, she'd come straight up and she'd be standing in the doorway as the people left the theatre, you know, and uh, they wanted some entertainment. And she said, I'll go up and get the ukulele. So I had it here and uh, she got the ukulele and they came in and Tiki and I were standing on the steps and a lady in that group took a photo of us doing our first thing in that 
uh, that uh, sitting on the, standing on the steps and it was full of coffee people having coffee and uh, uh, cinnamon toast. <laughs> oh God! And uh, at any rate, years and years and years later, a lady came in and said, "My mother was here with that group who came in to see Hello Dolly, and then came and saw you and Tiki, and she took a photo, and here it is of you and Tiki." doing a performance in your restaurant for the first time. And I found it the other day, a marvellous picture of us working with the ukulele. A great... And that started the whole of Tiki and John. Yeah, a great historical document, that photo. Yeah, Betty Pounder was the one. We had it called the... uh, uh, We called it the Stage Door Coffee Lounge. And Betty Pounder said, I've just come back from New York and a couple of gay friends of mine have opened up a coffee lounge and they've called it Bruce and Neville's and they're, they're, it's a marvellous thing, they're both there every night. And she said, why don't you call this Tiki and John's? And that's where we got the Tiki and John from Betty Pounder. Well, that's smart because you're personalising the, uh, yeah, mate, the business, aren't you? But it was a rod for your own back. You must be there if you call it Tiki and John. Every night to see... Every night, because the people are coming in to see you. Yeah. But you obviously uh, recognised a, a need for, for people to go to a place after the show to, yeah, to have that, a coffee. We or... had a late one on Friday and Saturday night on the first floor. We called it The Gods. And we went up there and we had a lot of performers came in and said, can I work for God's tonight? Yeah, sure you can. And they'd come in and they'd just do, try material out, like stand-up comedians and things like that. And uh, they'd get in there and walk. There'd be a full house, be a hundred people up there sitting in benches and uh, all of them bringing their own grog and they used to buy sandwiches from us. So when did you decide to develop it into a, a theatre restaurant experience? Right from the word when Tiki came back, yeah. she said, oh, I've got nothing going now. There's nothing coming in that's... Uh, we were getting into the My Fair Ladies and uh, Les Miserables, nothing for Tiki and that, you know. Not the sort of boy meets girl, girl meets boy, they get married and walk away into the sunset together. And that's what happened in every musical comedy. South Pacific did that. Uh, you know, Annie Gets a Gun did that. <laughs> Brigadoon did that. They all finish up with the girl and boy holding hands walking towards the backdrop. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the, the, the style of music theatre started to change. Changed completely. Yeah, yeah. It became more a play with music. Like Les Miserables was all vocals, but it was a story about the... Bastille and all that, you know. So, um, the old time music hall, that was what you first adopted as yeah. the style, wasn't it? We, we stayed with that because we knew it, and Vic Gordon joined the show. Vic was marvellous. He was a, uh, came out uh, with his partner, uh, Gord, uh, Gordon, and uh, 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 the two of them worked the Tivoli together, and then he went to his partner went to Sydney to work as a stand-up comic, and Vic stayed here because he married, and stayed here and uh, worked as a single comedian. And I got him from there, and a lovely old lady called Myrtle Roberts, who stayed with us for twelve years 
never missed a show and was in her 80s when she came and she was just marvellous and we were able to do Vic knew all the musical stuff and he he supplied us with all the the routines and the gags and we did everything yeah that's how it started and that Tiki and John's lasted five nights a week every week for 25 years and never missed a show I didn't wow you were quite genius with the way that you would uh, attempt to pull in a crowd tell oh, me yeah. tell me about the invisible Argentine fighting oh well fish. Jackie Clancy was a radio man he, he loved our place he was after he'd finished work he'd come over and have a coffee with me and he said you've got a front window there he said look I I want to put something in the window for you. I said, all right. So he got a, a big square tank and he put a couple of, you know, they usually had uh, rocks or a bit of fernery floating around in it. And he put a sign on the front which says, dangerous Argentine fighting fish. And... Uh, there was nothing in there at all. Above it, he put an oscillating fan that blew the top of the water and people out in the street would look at it and say, I saw it then. I saw the fish just just skimming past on the top of the water. And Jackie would be hysterical with laughter. He'd, he'd have to walk away because he'd scream with laughter. There's nothing in there at all. It was just the oscillating fan that blowing air on top of the water. And, the Argentine fighting fish. And Tiki and John's, where the stars meet? Yeah, Tiki and John, where the stars meet. The stars never met there, but they all went somewhere else to have their coffee and tea. And uh, we used to have a, had a room at the back, we called it the green room, where the people in the shows could come up and sit there and have a coffee with us, you know. Nobody bought... One fella bought a thermos coffee in and scones. And he's sitting there in his cons and his service of coffee, drinking it out of the lid of the thermos. I said, that's it, that's the end of the green room. They won't <laughs> even buy a coffee from it. It is show business after all, isn't it? It is show business. Yeah, yeah. Who was Gilbert Puffikins? Gilbert Puffikins was a character. Actually, it was from <clears throat> a fellow in the Kiwi called Ernie... He's a marvellous man. He was in a club that I was president of, the Footlighters, for years, and uh, he had this English dapper gentleman, and I loved the character, and he was buck teeth, and uh, uh, he used to play different gentlemen, you know, and I thought, he's funny, and I pinched the idea of being funny, but changed it into a comedian, and I had teeth made that fitted over my own teeth, but were buck teeth, and I had a top hat, and I used to have a, a fox's tail and uh, riding boots and everything, and I, I carried that that routine for 25 years. And did he act as the MC for for the show? And he acted the as chairman? the MC for the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. right from the word go. You had some great people performing there. Ernie Bourne. Ernie Bourne was there. He was marvellous. A little English man straight out of the music hall days, you know, so great. And all the people that 
that were there. My brother Bill worked there for a while while things were quiet in Sydney. He came down with his new wife, Marlene, and they worked in the show with us. And Frank, yeah, w- Frank Wilson? Frank Wilson was in the show, yeah. Frank and Tiki worked in Oklahoma together years ago. Yeah, And the great Maury Fields? Maury Fields and Val, whenever we took a ch- chance to take a weekend, a bit of a, ch- a break, break, we'd stop on Saturday night and open on Wednesday and Sunday, Monday, Tuesday with Maury and Val and we'd call the theatre Maury and Val's for that time. And everyone that rang up said, Tiki and John won't be in the show, but Maury and Val will. And we attracted their own audience to them. And they were marvellous evenings. Yeah. Terrific. So when did you decide to, to finish up Tiki and John's? We had a, we'd moved, to, I built a theatre just uh, 20 feet away from the old one, which was pulled down the moment we left because they needed it for the uh, entrance to the car park for the Palladian uh, uh, accommodation. And uh, we, I owned a, a building just 20 feet away from the original that we, I bought stupidly one day and suddenly the, uh, uh, an, uh, an architect called Gordon Bamfield, who loved show business and show business people, he said, I can build a theatre in there for you, side on, It'll only be 25 feet deep, but we could fit everything in. So uh, he drew it out on a, uh, uh, over at Mario's on a, on a, a, a serviette. I remember drawing it, showed me how it would work. I said, yeah, that'll work. So within the three to four months, we had the plans in to start building it, and we pulled the old building down, which was almost just slam a door it would all fall down and uh, dug a hole in the ground for the kitchen, bar and toilets and then ground floor for the theatre, first floor for the balcony, top floor for dressing rooms and lighting grid. And uh, that's how we just went from one to another. And we were in there, we'd been in there for about oh, five years, I think, and we were getting tired. Ticket, I would work so hard. And uh, we had a, this marvellous audience came in this particular night. Half of them were one big party and they G'd everybody up and everybody wanted to be part of it, you know. And we were thrilled with it because it was so good. And at the end of the night, everybody had left and it was about 12 o'clock and I got a bottle of French champagne out of the fridge and a couple of crystal glasses that I'd had in for such an occasion, I popped the top and we had two glasses. We linked arms like old professional theatre people do and we drank it and I said, here's to the best night we ever played. And Tiki looked at me and she said, and? And I said, and? She said, go on. And I think it's time we finished. And she said, I thought you'd say that. And that was where it was. We finished about two, three months later. We had such enormous bookings. We were booked out a year in advance. The ticket sellers knew they could sell the tickets because we were full every night. We only held 150 people, 
that's a tram load, you know. So you could soon fill that. And uh, we were full all the time. And I remember, uh, uh, I can't think of his name, one of the uh, premiers of uh, Victoria, uh, uh, he stood up in Parliament and he said, we're not doing too well in Victoria at the moment. We should get the Newmans to come in here, Tiki and John, and tell us to run a place because they're full all the time, a year in advance. <laughs> and I always, and he came in and saw the show a little while later, and I, I told the story, and you know, the, he got a good hand, I can't think of his name, was a lovely bloke. And of course you passed the baton on to a new generation of new Yes, well, my but, three kids, there was Haiti and Paul and Mark, and they had watched us perform every night, so they knew exactly what we did, and we changed the name of the new theatre, instead of Tiki and John's, we called it the Crazy House. And Paul took it over. And Mark, I found a, a basement just behind Myers. And it was up a lane called Drury Lane, of all things. Only D-R-E-W-E-R-Y, Drury. And uh, we changed that into a, a, an idea we had for Dracula's. And we did a horror theatre restaurant, and Mark took that over. And he made a huge success of it, because he did a character called Boris Farkenslash. <laughs> <laughs> He's a funny man. And I used to go there every night just to watch him do his gags. He used to do different gags every night. He was marvellous. And so was Haiti. She did a char character called Sarah Pikes, a, a drug sponge. And she used to write her own scripts and, uh, and do them in, the, in Dracula's and in the crazy house. So, so show business is the family business? It's always been the family business. It's amazing now. The first of my six grandsons has now uh, just moved into a place where he's going to... Uh, he's got his own band and his band plays there and he runs the bar. So we're back to doing what we started in the beginning. And he's, I call him Big Red, like the tin of tomato soup, because he's got red hair, which runs from his head right down to his bum. <laughs> well, John Newman, it's been an entertaining life indeed. You've it never has. stopped over several decades. Do you miss it? No, because I have my kids with me all the time. Uh, there, there's well, one been here this morning, and I'll have uh, Paul here this afternoon, and uh, Mark will be here for the late shift. They do uh, at five o'clock to eight o'clock at night, just to watch I don't fall over, because I fall over a lot, you know. <laughs> My centre of gravity's dropped a bit. Well, I think Tick at one stage in her career was the fall-down girl. Yes, she was the fall-down girl in Oklahoma. And she was marvellous at it. And they used to always point to her, the specialty girl. Well, let's hope you're not the fall-down fella. No, I'll try not to be. <laughs> John Newman, thanks for this conversation. It's been an absolute delight. Oh, terrific. Thank you, Peter. It's been lovely to talk to you. And uh, to all the people who are listening, who may have come to see us, Believe me, we loved every minute of it. Wasn't that the most inspiring conversation and a magnificent recounting of the industry of yesteryear? 
If you'd like to know more, John has recently released his autobiography, Tick In John, An Entertaining Life. And you can easily find that with a quick search online. It's a glorious read. John Newman has certainly enjoyed An Entertaining Life, and I thank him for his generosity of time and anecdote in this episode. And I know that we thank him too for his many contributions to audiences over many decades. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.